Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Rohit Saleem, the co-founder and chief product officer of SpotDraft, a product that helps companies create, manage, and review legal contracts. In 2017, SpotDraft's three founders teamed up to launch their new startup. They saw an opportunity to streamline the end-to-end contract management process and believed they could solve that problem. Initially, they built a product for freelancers and solopreneurs, but they quickly realized that most people in that market weren't willing to pay for a solution. So they decided to move up market and target Fortune 500 companies, but they didn't have the experience or the credibility to win those type of customers. Eventually, they struck a deal with a large reseller through which they got their first couple of customers. On paper, things were looking pretty good for them, and they were able to project out several million dollars in revenue just from this channel alone. But working with a reseller also created several new issues for the founders. They found themselves doing custom development work for each new customer, which led to a higher onboarding and support overhead. But worst of all, they didn't own any direct relationships with customers. They were effectively a subcontractor. It took the founders a long time to understand a fundamental lesson. As a SaaS business, you can't channel partner your way to product market fit. Eventually, the founders had to go back to the drawing board, do a whole bunch of custom interviews, and try to figure out a completely new plan. In this interview, we talk about how they went through that process, how they had to deal with losing some customers and revenue, and how they've been able to turn things around and start growing again with a more focused strategy. So I hope you enjoy it. Rohit, welcome to the show. Hey, Omar. Excited to be here. Do you have a, a quote, uh, something that inspires and motivates you that you can share with us today? Yeah. So believe it or not, I heard it on SaaS Club first. It was actually from uh, by Kelsey from Venue Book. And it was her quote. But I mean, the quote is actually from Winston Churchill, where it's it goes basically like, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Very appropriate for entrepreneurs. Yep, exactly. And uh, yeah, like I said, heard it on SaaS Club. Yeah. So so when I reached out to to you to talk about setting this up, you were like, hey, I, I feel like I know you because I've been listening to the podcast for for a while. So it kind of makes the conversation a little bit easier when we sort of, well, at least you feel like you've, you've been talking before. So uh, let's let's talk about SpotDraft. Can you tell us what does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem that you guys are helping to solve? Yeah, so SpotDraft is an end-to-end contract automation platform. We help companies create, manage, and review legal contracts. There are companies like DocuSign, HelloSign, PandaDoc, so on and so forth that end up focusing on the execution side of contracts around like, hey, I need to collect signatures from all these different people. Whereas we focus on everything before the contract is ready to be executed and everything after the contract is executed. Be it like in the pre-execution side, this sort of includes things like collecting the necessary approvals, routing it to the right people, 
going ahead and ensuring certain additional documents are uploaded as a part of the entire contract workflow and so on before the contract is ready for uh, signing. And then once a contract is executed, making sure like it's sort of processed continuously in terms of sending reminders to our customers around, hey, these are contracts that are expiring. Oh, you set a reminder for this, you know, on such and such date, allowing for them to track their obligations and rights of every single contract on the platform itself. Those are the kinds of problems and areas that we sort of like go after. Got it. So you and your co-founders, it's Shashank and Madhav? Yes. Uh, so you guys founded SpotDraft in 2017. Can you give us a sense of the size of the business in terms of revenue, team, customers? Yeah. So we are between a half a mil and a mil in revenue at this point. Our team is around uh, 50 people at this point, which is pretty big for me. I'm like, wow, we have a lot of people in the company. In terms of number of customers, we are at 25 plus at this point and growing. So yeah. Okay, great. Let's talk about like where the idea for this product came from. So I feel like a more interesting way of looking at it is the idea for the problem that we're going after came from. And I can't take any credit for that. That was all Shashank. So Shashank, my uh, co-founder, he is the lawyer in the group. He went to Harvard Law, uh, worked as a Wall Street lawyer for several years. And he was basically, uh, in fact, me, Madhav and Shashank overlapped together while we were living in New York. Although we didn't know each other that well, we did end up overlapping there. But um, he loves to tell the story where he was sitting in his office late at night one day and uh, he was reading this article on uh, self-driving cars and he's just like he was just blown away by what was actually happening and what he essentially had to do was essentially like correct drafting errors on this document and a lot of clerical work but it was sort of very very important work right and he's just like if cars can start driving themselves why am I like copying and pasting stuff? Uh, there has to be something better. Why isn't anyone doing it? It feels like it felt like a very important enough problem for him to actually solve, like go after the sort of like the legal tech market or where the end consumer is a lawyer more than anyone else. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that was interesting. I I, I remember sort of reading something about that and, and I thought it was just funny that on the one hand, he's thinking about self-driving cars and, and where technology is. And then like, wait a minute, as a lawyer, I'm still copying and pasting. Yeah. It's yeah. like there's, there's something wrong with this picture. Yeah. Okay. So that's where, where the problem was born. And then how long did it take for, for that to turn into a product idea or, or the first version of the product? So like, how, first of all, how did you three of you guys get together? Yeah. So it was sort of Shashank that sort of pulled us all together. He was really able to sort of sell us the vision, like both me and mother were doing other things at the time, you know, but uh, this to us just felt like a bigger problem, a bigger market. And one of the things that he told, told us really sort of stuck with us. And it was sort of like, he's like, Hey guys, the biggest sort of innovation that's happened in the legal industry was a plug-in to Microsoft word called track changes. And that was in 1995. 
right? Since then, people have basically been doing the same thing over and over again. You know, if a contract needs to be reviewed, it's like red lines uh, via email sent to one party and that party ends up redlining the document again and sends it back to you. It's just nobody's actually building for the space. But if you actually look at the size of the market, look at what's happening here. And while we weren't sure at that point of what exactly the product needed to be, we were pretty sure about, hey, this is a market that is large enough. It isn't going anywhere. And at the same time, it looks, based on everything we understood at that point, there were a ton of problems, right? Or a ton of opportunities for us to add value. So what did, what did you guys do? Like, did you kind of go out and start talking to customers or did you start building your, your MVP? Like, what was the next step that you took? Yeah, so... It initially started with a couple of different wireframes around like what the product would be. And uh, Shashank basically getting on calls with as many people as possible and uh, uh, just pretty much uh, just sort of trying to understand the market and being like, oh, this is your problem. Oh, yeah, SpotDraft can totally do that. You know, just wait for us to launch. (laughs) So that's kind of what happened. Wait for us to write the code. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. That's uh, that, that, that was sort of what happened. Um, in the background, uh, uh, there was obviously work being done, but like at least the initial work during the initial times, it was all Shashank. I give him all the credit there to really sort of uh, give us more understanding of the market and like figuring out like you know uh, different people we should be speaking to and so on. And so when you when you guys shipped the first version of the product, what what did it do in terms of functionality? Because presumably it didn't do all the things you just described at the start of this uh, interview. Yeah, so I feel like we went through a few different pivots. I'd say the first version of our product was around a very, very simple contract workflow, right? Where someone can come into the platform, they could actually go on to answer a few questions, have a contract generated, which could send to the counterparty, and the counterparty would end up answering their questions, and then the contract is ready for signing and uh, both parties end up adding the signature and it gets executed. The first version of the product, it, it was a very, very simple workflow and the initial market almost were like freelancers and solopreneurs and so on and so forth, right? We quickly came to realize that we would make no money selling to that market. So, so this was people who, presumably because this was a market of people who who didn't have the money to spend on lawyers and they wanted some low cost way of, of getting some kind of contract created, but it wasn't like, you know, two companies trying to negotiate a deal. And, and as you sort of described, like put together a contract and go through red lines and all that stuff. This was a much simpler scenario. Yeah, this is a much simpler scenario. We, we basically built out an entire templating engine and the ability to, create contracts out of templates, which could end up being executed on the platform itself, you know? So the idea was like, hey, forget about Microsoft Word and all of these different kinds of things. Just, it's way faster to do in SpotDraft. It, it, like, there was adoption in the freelancer market, but it was just one of those things where charging anything for the service didn't almost make sense. It's kind of like, how often would they end up, like, signing a contract, you know? Yeah. And uh, what's the sort of purchasing power over there? It, it just didn't match up over there. So I'm curious why you you ended up focusing on that target customer. Is is that the 
the kind of person that you guys were talking to when you started trying to sort of validate the idea and, and just get feedback on, on, on what type of product to build? I, I, I guess it was just easier in some points to just sort of build that, you know, as a team getting this built end to end and shipping it out. It was definitely a problem, but it wasn't sort of a problem where the target market had the purchasing power that was needed. So yeah, that's what I would actually sort of say ended up happening at that point. Okay. So so you've got a product shipped that can help with a sort of basic contract workflow, but you've realized that the market that you're targeting isn't the right one. And yeah. so what happens next or what happened next? Yeah. So again, Shashank, he is arguably one of the most uh, grittiest people I know. He's someone who uh, rarely ends up giving up on things. So it, it was pretty clear to us that we needed to sort of move up market. So getting meetings with larger companies and stuff like that, it's difficult when you're this sort of no-name startup. And at the same time, you're sort of trying to end up handling their contracts, if you think about it, which is super sensitive information for these larger customers. So he had this idea around figuring out various channel partners we could actually end up getting to end up selling for us. Uh, And specifically when I say channel partners, what I mean by that are like these system integrators, these large IT services businesses who their business is essentially implementing various technologies and sort of making sure that their customers start adopting newer technology and so on and so forth, you know? Yep. So so basically you're, you're in a position where it's like you want to reach a certain type of customer, but you it's not easy to access them. And you're not in a in a great place as a as an early stage startup to say, Hey, you know, we're going to come in and, and help you, you know, streamline your, your contract workflow, but being able to go through these resellers who already had relationships with those customers and were already selling a, a sort of a, a kind of a spectrum of, of different technologies. And there was some incentive for them as well to go in and sell this to those customers. That was the general kind of premise, right? Yep. That was basically the premise the idea was like, hey, how can we really sort of understand the problems that these larger companies actually face so that we can actually build for them? And yeah, this this was one of those things that just sort of made sense, you know? Okay. At the time. So. And so you, you approach, like, how long did it take you to sign up the first reseller or channel partner? Yeah, so we only ever had one sort of... Uh, uh, system integrator slash reseller. I, I, I'd sort of describe them less as a reseller uh, and more as a channel partner or system integrator. That's that's sort of how I'd describe them. So I think it took several months for this to actually end up happening. That part was actually quite straightforward. What we really got out of that was uh, a whole bunch of uh, like... Shashank was basically then on calls like nonstop with like different people that they wanted him to pitch to. It could be on one day, it could be like this Australian bank or another day it could be this South African conglomerate or it could be this telecom company based out of Norway. 
you know so what we really got out of that were a lot of these calls and um it took a while to actually end up closing some of our first deals via this particular channel partner they were like big deals as well both in brand name as well as ticket sizes and so on and so forth yeah that's what happened there okay so you you've got one channel partner who is going out there and and selling the product for you guys and you 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 get a couple of these deals in place but the the product that you'd built was for a much simpler workflow for that freelancer for the you know that kind of person so what happened when this product is put in front of a larger organization or someone who who has kind of more more complex needs for for contract workflow was was it were they able to start using the product as it was or did you guys have to start doing a bunch of dev work oh a whole bunch of dev work oh my god it was crazy so and part of it again i blame us for it not anyone else when you're actually selling to a fortune 500 company and so on it's much easier to sort of sell frontier tech to them um like cutting edge tech to them than it is to actually end up selling somewhat commoditized stuff for them right because a lot of like commoditized tech is uh, already being sold by you know the uh, sold to them by the oracles and the saps of the world right what they're sort of really interested in buying and what they're really sort of interested in experimenting with are things related to at that time it were things related to blockchain and artificial intelligence and so on and so forth right and we did have some level of expertise in house in those areas and while we were working on these things we kept sort of like diving deeper and deeper into a lot of that frontier tech you know so we were pretty confident around like building certain things out for them and the idea was that hey we're going to actually build this thing for you you know which we didn't have yet but we're going to show you a demo on such and such day once you're satisfied you're going to actually end up uh, then we'd move on to a proper engagement with an actual uat followed by you know an actual rollout after sounds more like a consulting gig <laughs> yeah it definitely it it definitely was i feel like there were times when um, we used to like swap the product out and add new features and stuff like that on a day on day basis or a week on week basis just to close a deal just to impress a client so it it was very very much it it definitely felt very servicey at that point and that's okay right i mean when you when you're sort of in the early stages of of building your saas business you're going to have to do these kinds of things because you haven't really kind of found product market fit yet and so hey we're getting feedback from customers so let's take that on board and and let's figure out how we keep building the right product for our market but at what point did you realize that this was becoming a problem uh, i mean a few different things sort of happened so uh, i i think it's sort of important to uh, describe the product that we built because that'll offer a little bit more color so what we ended up building was uh, what we called rag or red, red amber green analysis or rag and essentially what that was was a customer could go on to end up uploading a contract onto the platform and we would tell the customer that 
hey, these are the things, these are the parts of your agreement that is compliant. These are the parts of the agreements that's not compliant. And these are the parts of the agreements that is partially compliant, right? So that's essentially what we built at that point. And it, it was one of those things where like it worked great in a demo. You can just imagine that, right? Like, hey, I'm uploading a document, right? And like, wow, it's telling me that this is compliant. This is not compliant. This is great. You know, it really captured the imagination of uh, a lot of the folks that we speak to purely because uh, it's new. It's sort of using AI. It was interesting, right? The challenge sort of came up though when customers actually started using it, when the end user, the lawyer started using it, right? And this is sort of one of the limitations of the technology itself, right? And what I mean by technology is like uh, the entire AI ML space altogether, where it's great until it isn't, you know? So it's kind of like, hey, I'm uploading this contract and it seems to have gotten a few things right, but it doesn't actually get these other things right, right? And we are like, oh, you need to end up training the model with doing this. And you need to end up tagging data this way, right? Oh, okay, fine, great. But just sort of like, it, it, it was a product that just sort of required the user to do so much work in order to get any kind of value out of. I remember one of the customers we worked with, we went into uh, a UAT phase. UAT is like this user acceptance testing phase where they kept trying to test the platform. And we had this minimum criteria of like, hey, we need to hit at least 75% accuracy. But contracts itself is just so subjective, you know, if you think about it. And it just became this thing where the customer was essentially, and rightfully so, I, I don't blame them for this at all, around, hey, um, yeah, this is right in this contract, but not right in this other contract I'm testing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just kept going on and on and on, you know? And I'm just like, hey, like just sort of onboarding customers shouldn't end up taking like this long, right? If it's like this, we can onboard like, one or two customers a year, right? And we're not going to be a big business just sort of doing that, right? How we're sort of looking at product and stuff like that, it's just not going to scale because like every customer we onboarded felt just as hard as the first one, which isn't great, right? When you're building a software business, when you're building a SaaS business, the marginal cost for the first customer will, is very high, but every additional customer should end up decreasing quite dramatically, Right. And what I mean by marginal cost is just marginal cost for like development and product and so on and so forth. So yeah, that, that's sort of what happened there. Just sort of like how long the sales cycle was, was, how long it took to onboard customers. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, just did not make sense, did not make sense, did not make economic sense. That's when we were like, hey, this isn't really working for us. We need to somewhat go back to the drawing board and figure out what will actually end up really making sense for us, you know? Yeah, because, you know, you told me earlier that the situation looked great on paper, that, you know, you've got this big deal with this, uh, this services partner, channel partner. You can project out how you're going to hit your first million just from doing this. So on the face of it, it looked great. But then you're, you're sort of realizing 
wow, onboarding and like a support is is a big overhead. It was okay doing this with the first couple of customers, but if we keep just going this, you know, taking the same approach, it's going to take us, you know, five years to get to, you know, double digit customers or something like that. And and also the product was becoming an issue as well, right? Because it almost sounds like you, you had multiple flavors of of the product depending on the customer, and it wasn't really one. It wasn't really a SaaS product. Yeah, it, it was definitely one of those things where we built a whole bunch of things on top of, right? And it, believe me, it was like cool tech, but it, it was just becoming unruly to manage, and it was definitely something that needed to be rethought, you know. And that was something that we were pretty clear about in terms of the fact that something needed to change. We just weren't sure what it was. And I would almost say that it took us a lot longer to realize that than I wish it did, you know, but it it was also one of those things where, you know, like Shashank, me and Mother, we're, we're all fairly, we're all, we're all folks who don't really like to give up easily. And when we actually did end up deciding to pivot away from it or uh hey we've actually have these customers we'll continue to serve them it 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 was i truly believe we explored everything we possibly could before actually making that decision you know so yeah that's what happened there and and i think the biggest problem here was that you didn't even own the customer relationship Right? Yeah. You, you were just kind of, you were like a subcontractor. Yeah, we, we were basically, yeah, that's a good word to actually describe what we were. Uh, we were basically this company that this bigger company was using to actually end up opening doors for them to end up selling a whole bunch of other things too. And uh, it was like the customer we were dealing with didn't care about the product, right? The end user was someone though that we couldn't get access to. So it was just, yeah, that that piece right there was uh, definitely not ideal. The the sort of thing that I like to uh, whenever I meet different entrepreneurs or people who are like looking to build a company and they describe things to me, what I what I keep telling them is that you can't channel partner your way to product market fit. You just have to do the work. You know, you just have to own the early customer relationships, really understand their problems. That's the only way to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you'd also tell me that you'd been listening to the, uh, the uh, interview with uh, Advite yeah. from Go Guardian, and and how the channel partnership was actually is a significant part of the revenue that, that that business generates. But I think those situations are a little different, right? I mean, he didn't start out that way, and that's the yeah. point you're making. You're not saying channel partners don't work. It's just it's not the way to, as you said, get to product market fit or or or, or rely on in the early stages of of trying to get traction. Yeah, your product has to be mature enough to actually end up supporting a channel partner. You know, I uh, I don't blame our channel partner at all. You know, it, it's our own naivety that we almost didn't understand that at that point. But with Advait from uh, Go Guardian, it was like, uh, at least from listening to the interview, it felt like, hey, the product is already ready. They were like, they figured out this distribution channel for schools. And they literally ended up being like, hey, we made the sale why don't you actually build it through this particular channel partner? And the power dynamics itself are very different, you know, when you think about it there. So yeah, I, I definitely felt like the product was a lot more mature, you know, before they ended up exploring it. And, uh, you know, 
their revenue numbers are great. You know, I think uh, in five years they hit fifty million dollars in revenue or something like that. That I uh, yeah. yeah yeah yeah. So it, it can definitely work. The only thing I'd say is that really make sure you understand your end customer and make sure your product is mature enough to actually end up supporting it. Okay, so so you basically ended up going back to the drawing board, but how long did that take? So you you sort of started out in 2017. At what point did you guys say, okay, this isn't working? Let's let's go back and and kind of figure out how how you know we sort of unwind what we have here and come up with a better approach. Yeah, so uh, this actually happened in 2019, and. Uh, the last, I want to say Q4 of 2019. I want to say September or October of 2019. And uh, I actually remember this pretty clearly. So we knew this wasn't going to work. We knew we had money in the bank from these existing customers. But we knew that in order to scale to actually be the company we needed to be, our current uh, strategy wasn't working. And me and uh, Madhav actually went on a trip to... Lisbon for Web Summit. It was like a sponsored trip. We got free tickets and so on and so forth. So both of us actually ended up going for that. And I remember us like thinking pretty deeply about what exactly we would need to do. And one of the reasons why the product that we were working on till then didn't sort of work is because all the sort of data that was being used to actually end up training the AI models to end up detecting if something is like, compliant, partially compliant or not compliant were created by us, right? And it wasn't sort of like from user-generated content almost. It was, it was during that trip we sort of, at least me and Mother really started thinking about like, hey, if we really needed to make this work, what are the different pieces that we would need? You know, what are the kinds of things that, that we would need to end up happening? And then after that trip also, like spoke to Shank a bunch. But beyond that, we started really speaking to a lot of in-house counsels you know, like people and really trying to understand their existing sort of workflow, right? And actually watching them review contracts and recording it and then watching the recording all over again and just sort of trying to understand what exactly the entire process they followed internally within the organization is, who are the different teams that they sort of interacted with is. Like it was literally sort of going back to the drawing board I don't want to say we threw away the older product. It's still very much operational and it's still something we sort of support. But we knew that that there were problems in the space. We needed to sort of understand what exactly we were we really needed to do, what exactly we needed to really sort of focus on and double down on. So <laughs> I, I'd say end of 2019, fourth quarter of 2019, around uh, September, October, that's sort of like uh, when the inception of what we have right now started and we really started doubling down on that piece okay so let's talk firstly about the the product how from from the work that you did there and talking to customers looking at the market what did you change about the product yeah so it was um, a few different things and some of these things happened organically itself in terms of uh, these are things that we learned as we went about building the product right so one of the things for us was, okay, so some of them were based on gut, you know, and in terms of things that we were excited to work on and things that we felt were pretty ambitious to sort of work on. Some of it was definitely based on 
how do people currently do this job, right? What are the problems with how they currently do this job? Can we sort of fix it? And the third thing was around like, hey, is what we're trying to do, is there like a large enough market here for us to actually go after, right? So what we essentially did, there are a few different things and it's sort of a fairly complex product in some ways, but we try to keep it as simple as possible. But at its core, what we essentially sort of built was our own editor, right? And this is sort of built specifically for the legal use case, you know, the in-house counsel. If you end up looking at most of the editors out there, um, or rather 99% of all the contracts that are reviewed and contracts that people work on are done on Microsoft Word. And Microsoft Word wasn't built keeping a lawyer in mind, and it probably will never be built keeping a lawyer in mind because it's just too broad a product, right? But if you think about a legal contract, there's actually a lot of structure to it. There's the preamble where you sort of describe who the different parties are that are entering into this agreement and why they're entering into this agreement. There's this entire section on definitions, you know, in terms of in terms of where you end up defining all the different terms used in the agreement and uh, certain ways by which different things are actually phrased and so on. So there's a lot of structure to an agreement and people sort of use a general purpose editor to do all their work on that, you know? And lawyers, if you've ever seen like lawyers end up reviewing agreements, it's kind of like they either have two screens open And then they have one screen with one part of the document and another screen where they actually make their edits and they keep scrolling up and down, so on and so forth. One of the other really interesting things that we sort of learned when we did a lot of our user interviews is imagine, let's say, let's use two real companies. So uh, let's say Uber and Tesla are doing this deal and uh, the lawyers from each side are negotiating, right? The actual deal is sort of owned by the business people in the company um, where the business development team from Uber and the business development team from uh, Tesla, but the contract negotiation is happening between each of these different departments. So what would end up happening is that the lawyer in one of these companies, when they need input from different people, they would end up sending an email out with the word document to all the different departments that they need input from. They'd end up getting, they'd end up, adding comments on it and so on and so forth. Then they'd end up getting feedback from um, everyone, again, as an email and responses to the word attachment. And then they'll end up opening up each of those word attachment and then they'd end up working on their own document. And that was just like crazy for us. You know, we're like, oh my God, this just seems like so much work. Then another thing that we sort of realized was like, hey, lawyers actually end up spending so much time just cleaning up the document before it can get sent to the counterparty. They review the entire agreement once, looking for drafting errors. They try to make sure that they clean up all the comments, you know, in terms of, hey, this is a comment that is a discussion between me and my colleagues. I don't want the counterparty to know about that, you know, because this is sort of like exposing sensitive information. I I don't want them to actually get access to any of that, right? So like our editors sort of built keeping all of these sort of unique insights around how contracts flow within an organization in mind. It's almost like a place where people can come in and collaborate specifically for contracts, right? 
th- that's sort of what we started with, you know? So, yeah. Okay. So you sort of improve the product around the user experience, sort of the general workflow. What about the issue you mentioned earlier around, you know, customers complaining about the sort of the machine learning promise not living up to the demo and the fact that it needed to provide a whole bunch of training data for this thing to work properly. Did you fix that? Did you leave that as it was? Like what, what, what did you do in that, that area? Cause that, that sounded like that was a, that was a pretty significant problem for customers. Yeah, that, that definitely was a significant problem for customers. And it's something that uh, the editor sort of ties into that, you know, because the way this sort of works is that now all of a sudden we are getting the user to end up creating training data for us, Right. If there's a contract that comes from a counterparty, we're able to identify, hey, these are the different clauses in the agreement, right? These are specific areas that are heavily sort of negotiated. So all of a sudden, we, we, we're getting the user to end up creating training data for us, right? And it's sort of like in real world contracts. And we also sort of position the sort of ML side of things, not as, hey, more as suggestions rather than as anything else. But again, some of these things are things that we're still working on, you know, and still trying to improve further. It's not something that gets solved overnight, but using the editor is uh, as sort of like our North Star and sort of as a foundation, it sort of allows us to do a bunch of these things. So, Okay, great. So, okay, so the product looks like it's in better shape. How, how did you start finding customers? So now you've got to go the direct route. What were the the channels that you initially tested to find customers and and what worked for you to to land your your first customer your direct customer yeah so it, it was basically outbound to be very honest you know so there are a couple of things we did we did end up attending a few different conferences right uh, back when there were physical conferences you know so we attended we attended a bunch of uh, legal conferences and met a whole bunch of in-house counselors, so on and so forth. Uh, a bunch of them showed some level of interest, varying degrees of interest. But our first sort of customer with this new product approach, that sort of came up through an outbound cold email almost uh, that went out. She was actually looking for something. We sort of were like, hey, we're building this exact same thing. We... Uh, develop the right relationship with these uh, with these customers, and um, yeah, that's sort of what happened there. Okay, and then so is outbound still the the biggest driver of new customers for you today? Yes, currently it's definitely outbound. There's some predictability to it, but at the same time, we also know that we do need to end up nurturing and building out other channels. And uh, how, how big is your sales team? So our sales team is four people and Shashank, you know, who jumps in on sales calls whenever needed. But yeah, they're great. They're fantastic. And and how much of your revenue is coming from this? So if, so we can almost think about this in like two two products, right? So there was there was sort of part one, which was spot draft that you went through this this channel partner, and there's a bunch of like custom dev work, and then now you've moved to you know a sort of a true SaaS solution. And made that sort of product pivot. So this new product, how, how much percentage-wise is, is sort of the revenue coming from that now? Yeah, so it's around 65% and growing at this point. We still do have a bunch of uh, revenue from our older customers, 
And that's okay. You know, we're still supporting them. We're still doing whatever we can. Um, we do want to make sure they continue to get value from Spotraft, but we're not actively trying to onboard customers into the older product. And is there some plan to move them over to the new product? Is this driven by either some kind of, you know, do you have some long-term agreements in place that you need to honor with these customers or they just have a bunch of functionality in the legacy product that that isn't met in the new version of the product? What's what's the reason you haven't been able to sort of move these people over? Yeah, the, the, they do have a lot of uh, legacy functionality, which I'm hesitant to sort of like introduce into the newer product, into our newer focus, just because... Uh, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me to actually end up focusing all the time and energy to actually end up doing that. It much rather, and, and, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that these customers themselves are very different in nature. You know, some of the newer customers that we're all the newer customers we're getting on, uh, there's a very sort of specific uh, use cases that they're actually want to solve. Whereas these larger customers, the problems that they want to solve are again, very sort of different, you know? So, trying to merge them both into one product. It's just something that we're not ready for. So yeah, for right now, this is how we are keeping it. Okay. So, I mean, it's an interesting experience to to go through and, and obviously you guys learned some some important lessons here and, and sort of came back from that, pivoted on the product. And it sounds like the, the way you're growing, you're on track to hit your first million ARR, hopefully soon. But when you look back at your experience, is there anything you wish you had done differently? Yeah. So I feel like it's very easy to end up getting lost in the weeds, you know, when you're building a company around and just being focused on the operational side of things, being like, hey, this is what needs to get shipped. Let's make sure we do it. We've promised this to so-and-so, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like there were in certain cases, we should have cut our losses even earlier than when we did. It's easy to say that in... uh, uh, hindsight, but more than anything, I wish we'd cut our losses even earlier. You know, even if we lost out on a few customers that we ended up getting on board right at the end, but just sort of making the shift to what we're doing right now instead of end of 2019 to let's say mid 2019, you know, that would have really ended up uh, setting us up for even better success at this stage. You know, so yeah, and 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 I think it's kind of easy to look back and you know, like they say, like in in hindsight, everyone's a genius, right? And we can kind of look back and say, yeah, of course, you know, you should have done it this way, and maybe not even bothered doing any kind of channel partner relationship for the first you know x number of years and gone directly and built a product like this, but. The other way to look at this is you probably had to go through that experience and part of that, at least part of that journey to understand the market well enough to be able to get to where you are today. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. You know, it's, it's one of those things where Shashank loves to say this, where he's just like, hey, unless we did that, I would have always thought we could have done it, you know, but we literally gave it our all, you know, and we had some level of success but it just wasn't the level of success that we wanted, you know? So uh, we we had to make that decision, this thing. So, uh, yeah. The big thing, though, is, uh, and I think I mentioned this earlier as well, like when you're starting a company, it's it's important that you don't get married to the solution or the solution that you build, but rather you're just in love with the problem that you're trying to solve. And if the solution you build isn't really apt 
for solving that particular problem or addressing that particular problem in a scalable way, you should be okay to actually change that. You know, you should be okay to actually like, I'm not saying you do that every single day or like every month. It's your, your team is going to go crazy, you know, if they see so much flux, but uh, more than anything, it's important to be in love with the problem rather than being in love with your solution. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. I think as you know, you, you, you may have mentioned this, but I think it's, it's the right thing, but it's just really hard to do, especially when you're in the middle of that situation, right? You, you don't want to say no to any customer. You don't want to say no to any, any feature. Once you've invested so much time in, in building a product, you don't want to rip it out and, and do something, you know, different. You want to, it's like, maybe it's just, it's that kind of thing about, well, maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's just that, that, is just around the corner. If you just keep going one more day, one more day, right? We can kind of get there. And then, you know, eventually I think you can look back and say, okay, we need to do something different. But uh, when you're in the middle of it, it's it's really tough, isn't it? Yeah. All right, uh, let's wrap up. I'm going to go into the lightning round. I'm going to ask you uh, seven quick fire questions. So just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Ready to go? Yeah. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Hire people better than you and make sure they're set up for success. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. It's probably the most raw book of entrepreneurship, you know, around like, and just going through the grind. I don't think I've experienced everything that Ben Horowitz has gone through, but I do feel like, especially over the last uh, few years, I've gone through a portion of it highly recommend it to anyone who wants to start a company. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Grit, just not giving up. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? So this is something that I've uh, been doing recently and I think it's working out pretty well for me, but I block off two hours in my day from 9am to 11am to just sit and think and write down notes on, uh, uh, higher leverage activities. It's never product spec or anything like that. It's more around like, hey, this is something I think is broken or why is this broken? But just blocking off time in your day to actually think about your business is important. I like that. That's that's a good one. Uh, what's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the time? Um, yeah, so bunch of interesting things in the healthcare space. A lot of, uh, a lot of interesting problems. I, I don't know what exactly yet. I just know that there are a bunch of different kinds of inefficiencies in hospital and how hospitals are run or how clinics are run and so on and so forth. I've seen that firsthand. I, and I feel like it's again, a massive industry. So yeah. yeah. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? So, well, my co-founders know this, but um, for most of the time during the pandemic, I worked from a hospital. So uh, my wife is actually a doctor and she works at this hospital, which is uh, brand new, and they have a whole bunch of empty offices and stuff like that. So, uh, after a certain point of working from home, I just it just became too much for me, and uh, I just ended up going with her to work, hijacking this office and working out of there. So, yeah, that's fun. And and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Yeah, so. I uh, struggled with answering this because I feel like all I do is work and think about work. But uh, 
what I do enjoy doing is I also enjoy traveling. You know, uh, I feel like it's important to take a break periodically and just going to a different place really helps you think about problems differently. Think about things that you're going through in your head uh, a lot differently. It, it, it sort of rejuvenates you. So, yeah. Awesome. Great. So if uh, people want to find more and learn more about Spot Draft, they can go to spotdraft.com. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, Rohit Salim or Rohit underscore Salim, R-O-H-I-T-H underscore S-A-L-I-M. Awesome. Uh, Rohit, thank you so much for joining me. And, um, you know, I appreciate you staying up late. It's almost, what, midnight over there for you? Yeah, it's it's 11.50 p.m., but don't worry about it. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. It's been great to chat. And, uh, you know, I wish you you and the rest of the team the best of success. Thanks a bunch, Omar. All the best. Take care. Cheers. Take care. Bye.